It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged here on Sirius XM Urban View, where talk empowers and becomes action. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams, and I'm so glad you made it to class this morning. I hope you had some time this Independence Weekend to take a break, but also to reflect on the moment and the movement that we are currently in. Later on in the show, I'll be joined by biblical scholar, author, and speaker, Dr. Naisha Jr., who teaches at Temple University and will be visiting Harvard Divinity School next year as well. You may remember Dr. Jr. in my conversation about the church's role in movement. She was on with two others some time ago, but she'll join us to discuss her new book, which she co-authored titled Black Samson, which explores the biblical story of Samson and how this figure became associated with African Americans, that he became a a Black or a story of a Black biblical character, and also how it connects to race relations over uh, a number of years, and how other people like Richard Wright, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, even Ida B. Wells has uh, called upon this story as it relates to our struggle here in the United States. So we'll talk more about that book later on in the show. But, you know, let's talk about the 4th of July. First of all, did you grow up calling it Independence Day? Did you grow up calling it the 4th of July? Was your practice primarily wrapped up in the the birth of the country? Or was it just about barbecue and fireworks and a vacation and outfits and being outside, being at the park, being at the barbecue? I I can attest to that it wasn't obviously until I was older making the uh, connection. I knew it was about, I knew it was Independence Day. I knew it was about founding a country, you know, because we went to school in the United States. Yes. But primarily the 4th, the 4th of July, Independence Day weekend was more about parties, barbecue, new outfits, going to your cousin house, your favorite aunt house who got the big backyard or the pool. It really wasn't wrapped up in the culture of sort of celebrating the founding of this country. And I know for a number of people, that is different. Uh, For a number of people, waving the flag, particularly if you come from a military family, I have several members of my family who are in the military. Actually, my stepfather, my father, also in the military. And even them being military men, it's still, you know, the flag was present. I was aware that they were in the military and wore a uniform and fighting for our country. But it was more about the barbecue and the time with family. And so, you know, I did reflect a bit in terms of where we are right now. And I I remember this story. I I have vivid memories of certain teachers. And Miss Triplett, who was an elementary school teacher of mine, I remember sometime, I don't know what grade I was. I know I was young. It was elementary school. So she was one of my favorite teachers. And she had signed me up to participate
participate in an African dance class. This was my first time participating in dance outside of church. And it was an after-school activity. And after a few weeks of rehearsal, we were all cuddled in a classroom with our little black leotards on. And Miss Triplett walked in with a handmade skirt for each of us. And I remember the excitement primarily of a new skirt and that it was made just for me. And it made me prideful because Miss Triplett had talked about the fabric. And this is back when kente cloth was, you know, a big thing. And that was the extent of our uh, Ankara knowledge and uh, so talking about uh, kente cloth. But I felt the pride of that pretty new skirt, particularly because it was made for me because she took our measurements and we had our names on them and that my classmates also had one. So we were together. It was all of us presenting as a class, as a cohesive unit. And Miss Triplett had always stressed the importance of us as a unit together. She instilled in us the importance of we in terms of community, in terms of our classmates, in terms of our family. And she reinforced the same lesson that I was learning at home and at church, that I should always act in the best interest of my fellow classmates and our greater world. I would be reminded of her lessons again when I started learning about the constitutions in a more adult context. And particularly when we get to the preamble, as I bring out my constitution, which says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves, our posterity, to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. You notice something in reading that preamble, and those of us who grew up and actually can sing the song. <laughs> but we talk about we, and that it is collective, we the people. And like most, I learned about the founding fathers and the constitution, absent the context and contradiction of American slavery and America's overall history, even as it pertains to Native Americans and others. I assumed that that we in the preamble automatically included me when I first gained this knowledge. And I assumed that that we included me and all of my classmates. It wasn't until later that I would come to learn how much of a fight was required to have people like me included in that we. Now, we celebrate and revere the Constitution and its signers for their profound wisdom and their bravery to stand up against tyranny and chart a new course towards freedom and self-governance. But you don't have to erase the defective nature of America to celebrate its promise of a more perfect union. All the founders may have not had me in mind, and no, they definitely did not have all of us in mind when they drafted and debated and set this course of independence because there were a number of abolitionists and activists and others, individual folks that didn't have the type, the title of activists or abolitionists who fought hard for not only freedom for everyone, but also to make sure it was on paper, right? Those amendments to expand who was included in the week. Now, it's that history of activism which informs my belief that the Constitution is a living document, right? To be inspired by the story of the founding fathers setting this course of freedom. We can be inspired by that. We can call out the wrongs. We can call out the sins and still believe that this is an inspirational story. It requires this constitution, this living document. It requires each generation of Americans to think and act on the founding promise and collectively
collectively decide how we can further protect and expand individual freedoms and human rights. Because at the heart of this, remember that this is all about the we, we coming together, we deciding how we want this country to behave, how we want to make sure to invest in the freedom for all. So what would I wish for America on this 4th of July on its birthday? What is it? 244 years, I think. I think math is correct. Maybe. I don't know. Call me out and let me know. (laughs) But my wish for America is for this nation to live up to its founding principles of freedom. America, with all its flaws and contradictions, still has promise, but only if it unclenches its death grip on racism, discrimination, and the predatory capitalism that's cloaked in the shields of American mythology and exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Let that sit in. Being Black in this country, and particularly being a Black woman in this country, I can tell you and those of you who know and live this experience, being Black in this country is exhausting. Carrying America's contradiction is a heavy load when all I want is the true freedom promised in the founding documents. America's flaws and deliberately manufactured structural institutions of racism, because they were deliberately created, they were not our design. Yet the work of dismantling these shining bright white towers in the city upon a hill is a yoke that is placed upon us all. Freedom is not free. And in order for America to truly live up to its promise, it's not enough to have principles of freedom on paper, that constitution. It is going to actually make sure that we put those uh, ideals into practice and make sure that we put those ideals into practice for everyone, the we. So as America celebrates its freedom from tyranny, as a Black woman and as an American, I'm following in the footsteps of my ancestors and in the tradition of the founders of this country. I'm fighting like hell against the tyranny and the oppression that America continues to allow in its name. With that, I hope you did have a wonderful barbecue <laughs> for this holiday weekend. And when we come back, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Junior as we dive into our conversation about Black Samson. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I am particularly excited, as you know, to always bring authors on the show to talk about their new babies, their new works. And we have a previous guest, Dr. Junior, who's the associate professor in the Department of Religion at Temple University. You may remember that we had Dr. Junior back on the show some time ago when we were talking about the black church and involvement in civic and political action. Well, she is back and this time to talk about a new book that she co-authored called Black 
Sampson, The Untold Story of an American Icon. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Junior. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I'm um, particularly interested in this analysis, and you're going to, you know, sort of give us a, a, a general idea of the thesis of this, but particularly talking about the the story, the biblical story of Samson and how it became this centerpiece story in the, in African-American tradition. But you can explain it more because you spent some time on it. So go ahead and give us um, what this book is about. Sure. Well, I know that you know your Bible, but uh, <laughs> just to make sure that everybody is on track and understands where we are. The biblical story of Samson is in the book of Judges. So Samson is considered one of the judges uh, in Israel, and this is before we get to the time of kings. So if people are looking for where this would fit in a biblical chronology, this is after people like Moses and the Exodus, but it's before we get to somebody like King David or King Solomon. Mm -hmm. So this is the time of the judges. Samson is one of the judges. And Samson has a miraculous birth story, as do various folks in the Bible. But I think the part that people are probably most familiar with is at the end of his life when we talk about Samson and Delilah. Yeah, I would imagine that most people's uh, knowledge of Samson, even those who go to church, right, the story that they know of is Samson and Delilah, because how many of us have sat in many of church pews to hear uh, the different interpretations and different preacher interpretations of that interaction. <laughs> right. So the full story is Judges 13 through 16. And in 16, we have Samson and Delilah. So Samson, according to the text, loves Delilah. The text does not say how Delilah feels about him, mm -hmm. which is important to the story. So Samson has amazing strength and Delilah wants to know the secret of his strength because the Philistines are going to pay her to find out his secret. So three times she tries to get Samson to tell her the secret. And three times he gives her a story. It doesn't work. The Philistines come out. It doesn't work. So finally she says, listen, you say you love me. I thought we were we were more than this. I thought, you, I I thought we were together. I thought it was you and me. I thought... Right. <laughs> I thought this was us. I thought we were in it together. And so finally he says, okay, my strength is in my hair. So she calls out the Philistines. His hair is cut. His strength leaves him. The Philistines show up and they are able this time to capture him. So Samson and Delilah, many people think of as a love story, but really he's the only one who says he loves her. And she set him up and this is how he ends up enslaved to the Philistines. But his hair starts to grow back. So although he is enslaved to the Philistines, um, the Philistines gouge out his eyes and force him to work in their mill. They later bring him out, sort of like a party trick. Like So they bring him out while they are celebrating and worshiping their god, Dagon. And they say, you know, bring out the prisoner, bring out the Israelite, let us see him. In my classes, I talk to students about what they think that might have looked like, what 
what kind of humiliation. Sing us one of your songs, do us one of your little dances like you all do or things like that. But Samson is placed between two pillars and at the end he cries out for revenge and praying to God and he pushes the pillars apart and the whole temple comes crashing down. So he kills himself but he also kills a number of Philistines. So <clears throat> the story that people think of often as a love story is a lot more complex and in the book Black Samson the untold story of an American icon we talk about how different authors and artists and intellectuals have used the story of Samson particularly talk about issues of race in the US so before we get there because you know I, I, I want to dig down a little bit in Samson's story and then I want to get to the point I think which you talk about in the book of how Samson becomes a black people story and and then later talk about particularly the correlations of those stories and race relations not primarily in the United States but sort of uh, across the world but I want to go back because you know as knowing my Bible you know the story of Samson is not just the Delilah and pulling down and like him killing himself and you know and, and killing the Philistines there's a whole bunch of stuff that Philistines and stuff were doing to him before we even get to Delilah I mean he had married he had married somebody and then the the, that was a mess right like he so so for those of you who don't know the story and we'll probably go back and read this but remember so he like has a first love marries her go ask to to marry her marries her plays a joke you know for a wedding little jokey joke Uh a little riddle whatever on his groomsmen which by the way he had like 30 of them was it 30 or 40 it was 30 okay okay (laughs) so like 30 groomsmen whatever they're playing a trick on him and then like he goes he goes away and comes back and and the daddy done married him off to one of the groom what is what the heck yeah okay so so let's back up again you probably need to read the whole story folks if you don't remember all of this it's judges 13 through 16 you can find it online find it in your bible So before Delilah, many people think Samson and Delilah are married, but that's not in the text. So the woman he marries or tries to marry anyway, is a Philistine woman. So notice he's an Israelite who's marrying a Philistine and they're supposed to be at war. So he's marrying somebody who's not an Israelite. As you mentioned, he poses a riddle to the bridal party and they go to his fiance wife and say, you better find out this riddle for us or there's going to be trouble. So she manages to get Samson to tell her the the riddle, the answer to the riddle. And so the groomsmen then come back. The problem is that Samson had bet with money he didn't have. Hmm. So he goes to the next town. Beat up some people. people. No, wait, he killed people, didn't he? Yes, yes. Killed people, takes their clothes, and then brings it back to pay off the debt, which is 30 changes of clothes. So yes, even though he is in a position position of leadership in ancient Israel, he is questionable when we talk about leadership. Some of my students at Temple frequently talk about Samson as their idea of a dumb jock. (laughs) 
he just he seems impulsive he doesn't seem like the kind of law and order judge that we might think about Mm -hmm. Um, somebody who is wise like uh, Deborah who's also in uh, the biblical judges Mm -hmm. so uh, Samson seems very kind of hot tempered and causing all kind of trouble and even though the text doesn't mention what he looks like we still often think of him as a big dude Mm. Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of bodybuilder I'm dating myself here uh, Lou Ferrigno but I mean but that's also has a lot to do with culture and uh, media representation right because we have uh, and this is not just talking about television this is also talking about you know before if you're talking about how things were drawn or stories were presented we can see the similar story of how the depiction of Christ over time has changed and obviously we didn't have TV in some of the in for a long period of that time but in terms of how he's depicted whether it's from glass stained windows to pictures to anything it like changes over time now let's fast forward so you know I wanted to start with that premise is that you know Samson and Delilah's story is not the totality of um, his problems his issues (laughs) and the story overall so go read Judges 13 to 16 because this was whole there's a whole other thing on how like you know how women are depicted in his life there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff there his mama there's some animal cruelty like there's a whole bunch of stuff him and his mama and the daddy and the angels you know it's a whole bunch of stuff (laughs) okay (laughs) but now let's let's talk about how as we talk about that representation of we then over time culture over time even though the bible doesn't specifically state what samson looks like you know or his full description we and i'm using we as in culture we as in human beings collectively have developed over time what we imagine him to be particularly because he has strength and i find i always found it interesting that in order for him to have strength that he had to be described with these physical traits in order to depict strength rather than strength being depicted in other in, in different ways and then mm-hmm. we get it to then that means he black like how do we go <laughs> like, how do we go from you know strength and hair and you know because of his pledge and his vow and his hair and then he has locks and then I was like wait how do how do we make that jump to now he's black yes. so this is a complicated story which is why it took us a whole book to <laughs> try to explain this myself and my co-author Jeremy Skipper who's also at Temple University so what we try to do is explain that this isn't a recent phenomenon. This isn't something that is just based on film depictions or contemporary culture. So one of our earliest mentions of a Negro Samson is from 1738. Mm. So this isn't a 20th century invention, but in the colonial world, both free and enslaved people were named after characters from the Bible or characters from Greek and Roman literature. So when we talk about Moses or David or those kind of figures, those were typical names that someone might have. An 1810 memoir is our first instance of an enslaved African's mentioning of the Samson story. So in a memoir by Bo 
Ororo Grinch, who is nicknamed Jeffrey Brace. He talks about being forced to fight in the Revolutionary War in 1777 because his slave master forced him to fight. So he talks about this desire for vengeance and bringing down the temple. When we get to issues of strength, someone like the boxer, Jack Johnson, is talked about as being a type of Samson figure. So the physical presence of someone like that. But really, the connection is more made because Samson is forced into labor. So after the Delilah incident, part of what happens is this: the Philistines gouge out Samson's eyes and he's pressed into service working in the prison mill. And so this connection of someone who is forced to labor for others, and then with his dramatic death, that's the connection that people make. And that leads to talking about a Black Samson, especially because at the end, he kills a bunch of Philistines, but he also dies. But the the Philistines are still at war with the Israelites. So it's not as if this one act means, okay, and then that was the end. Mm -hmm. It's not as if the Israelites are all of a sudden delivered. It means that the fight continues. So for some, it's in some ways a heroic martyred death, this suicide bomber. And for others, it's really just a foolish vendetta because Samson prays for vengeance for his eyes before he dies. So the connection is usually made because of his being forced into labor. Mm. You know, I, 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 Found it, I find it interesting in a number of the insurrections and fight back as it pertains to the involuntary servitude that our people, that ancestors endured here were, you know, a lot of them sort of had this biblical base, right, of this seeking vengeance on God's people, on God's behalf, God is with us. And to this point that you just made about that it is never the end. There is never no, and God saved us all. But those of us who also know our Bible, like we are also not promised that until a very, very <laughs> long, like, like it, the struggle continues is really, you know, should be the subtext of the Bible itself because like there's always this ongoing, you know, um, struggle. And then you have like, and then we're just hoping to get to the end part where, you know, Jesus come back and we all... <laughs> (laughs) Like, and everything is all done. But in the meantime, the struggle continues. So (laughs) I I always found that sort of connection there as well. There's one really good example that we talk about in chapter five in the book. So blind Samson becomes this way of talking about African-American resistance. Mm. So in the 60s, Malcolm X, in an interview, talks about this was following a big airline crash and following the death at the hands of the police, one of his colleagues, Ronald Stokes, uh, who was part of the Nation of Islam. And Malcolm X in the interview compares the flight crash with the destruction of the Philistine temple Mm. and talks about, can't we also be glad about our enemies being vanquished? 
Mm. Martin Luther King also talks about Samson and says, uh, basically, <clears throat> when you worship something like Samson's activity, you genuflect before the altar of revenge. And so he talks about Samson, who is eyeless, who is praying for the destruction of his enemies, but that also results in his own destruction. So there are lots of different figures that we talk about in the book who use Samson in lots of different ways, both to talk about him as a hero and also to talk about him really as a sad figure who dies along with his enemies. Mm. Now, you get to the the later point in the book as well as sort of e- equating this conversation with race relations overall. Talk a bit about that. Sure. So <clears throat> this links back. Again, what we are trying to do is to demonstrate that this is part of a tradition that morphs and changes over time rather than something that's only contemporary. So part of what happens is early writers talk about the Temple of Liberty in debates over slavery. And the Temple of Liberty is a symbolic way of talking about the United States. So Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in his poem in 1842 called The Warning talks about this blinded Black Samson figure and offers a warning that this poor blind Samson may one day shake the pillars and that might affect the Temple of Liberty. So he's offering this warning that it's really important that people think about how they are treating enslaved people who need to be free because this is something that may actually affect the Union. In later work, someone like Ida B. Wells Barnett also talks about Samson. In her work, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law and All Its Faces, she talks about the lynching of Black people and also talks about the white women who make false accusations as white Delilahs. So there are later things that we talk about relating to the civil rights era, relating to uh, King and X. But part of what we're trying to do is to explain that this is a longer tradition that includes a lot of different writers who use Samson to talk about race. One of the things that we do at the end of the book is talk about visual representations of Black Samson. So as you've mentioned, there have been recent conversations about uh, Jesus and what does he look like. My second book is Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible, which talks about Hagar and issues of Blackness. And so in this seventh chapter, we talk about how Black Samson is looked at in editorial cartoons, films, paintings, graphic novels, and television. And what happens is that Black Samson is used as an icon to talk about questions of race. So, for example, he shows up very early in Harper's Weekly to talk about politics and shaving his hair as a way of talking about political strength. He also shows up in the History Channel in an episode on Samson in a miniseries called The Bible, where Samson is depicted as a large Black man and used in a way to talk about relations between Philistines and Israelites and in a very heavy-handed way they have a very dark
dark-skinned Samson and his family as compared to much lighter-skinned other actors who are part of the show. For us, really what we're trying to do is, again, explain that this is part of a tradition, one that many people don't know about. So you might be more familiar with other figures like David or Solomon or Moses. But what we wanted to do was to talk about this figure of Black Samson, how it changes over time, and how it's used by different people to talk about race in different ways, both as someone who is striving for freedom and someone who makes political mistakes in his actions in moving towards freedom and liberation. Mm. So it's not a single story, but uh, both and in looking at how he's used in different ways. So Dr. Junior, one of the other interesting pieces, I, I read the so I read the introduction, read some of the preview chapters, and one in particular that was a, of significant interest to me is Samson and and labor, right? Sort of the how Samson is used in the labor movement. And I found that uh, discussion in that connection particularly interesting. You bring up in the book one of um, my favorites um, on my bookshelf, Claude McKay, and particularly as I'm digging down deep in my scholarship right now of Black folks and socialism over time, Claude McKay obviously comes up, you know, a lot in in that discussion. But talk a bit about how Samson was using that context in terms of labor movements. Yes. So labor issues are something that has always been connected with race and ethnicity when we talk about the U.S. So part of the concern uh, when we talk about Black Samson is this issue of how does he fit in? So getting to um, McKay, as you know, he's a Jamaican-born poet, novelist, essayist, and he is someone who criticizes the NAACP as an elitist organization and says that basically it doesn't represent the political and economic concerns of the Black working class. Mm -hmm. So he talks about uh, Du Bois and talks about the NAACP and says that part of what needs to happen is people need to come together because Blacks are, Black folks are hostile to communism because they think of it as something that's for white working class folks. And he thinks that this is something that they need to push back against. Mm -hmm. So in one of his poems, which is entitled Samson, he talks about Samson as the chosen Nazarite. He talks about, oh, sable Samsons in white prisons bound and suggests that they need to come together and reach out to the pillars and strain at them and pushing them down creates uh, the ringing of freedom in your ears. So part of what he's talking about is this question of self-determination by African, African descended people and moving towards strength and self-liberation. So the idea is that Black Americans should not just think of themselves in terms of race, but also think in terms of class and acknowledge their strength. So thinking of Black Samson in this way, not as someone who is just wreaking havoc, but someone who recognizes his strength. And that's part of understanding the Samson story in light of African-American labor. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of this because this story and this representation is all over the place. <laughs> it's 
all over the place. <laughs> Yes, this was a this was a tough one to write and also to figure out what to include, what to take out, how to construct a narrative. So the the Samson story is only four chapters. It's not as long as um, many other biblical characters, but there's a lot packed into it, and it deals with issues of gender, ethnicity, power. So there's a lot there, and again, our goal was to try to lay this out as a tradition of different people talking about Black folks and different means, different strategies of bringing about Black freedom and liberation. How can it be that you love the Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, and we are talking to biblical scholar, author, and speaker, Dr. Naisha Jr. of Temple University about the new book that she co-authored, Black Samson. Now, what do you think, you know, sort of connecting the story to what is happening now in our political discourse? Obviously, this weekend, one of the reading the piece that you mentioned earlier about the enslaved individual who was forced to fight in support. This is during the Civil War, I believe, and forced to fight on behalf. Oh, no, the Revolutionary War. It was the Revolutionary War. Yeah, so forced to fight on his master's behalf for his freedom, quote, (laughs) but forced into, and so, you know, reading that story also in the weekend of people also asking, you know, what does the fourth mean to you and sort of this independence piece, you know, on the one hand, you know, so many stories and fights, whether it's a fight for humanity or against humanity, the the Bible is used in in both ways, right? It's, you know, was used both for the person seeking freedom and also the person owning the people. Right. And so I'm always fascinated by how the scripture can be used to argue in either, (laughs) like in either fashion. But it's particularly interesting, the story of Samson, and because, again, as you mentioned, it's not like he doesn't even have a whole chapter dedicated to him. It's like a couple of, you know, a couple of passages. It's a couple of chapters, not a whole book. Not a whole book, I mean. Yeah, not a whole book. So Ruth gets a whole book. Esther gets a whole book. Samson, there's a lot crammed in, but it's just one story in the book of Judges. And I wonder, just forward thinking, not that you are, you know, that kind of sayer I should say but forward thinking of how this same story will be used in other ways whether it is in the contemporary fight and discussion that's happening now or 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 looking down the line sure I think one of the things that's become clear is that what we see now with black lives matter and movements towards black freedom and liberation is that we're no longer 
are operating with business as usual. So we don't see the same this hit black male pastors in charge. We don't see the same people at the mic. We see, yes, clergy and churches and other faith communities being involved, but we see more of a leaderful movement where there are lots of different people who are involved, lots of different organizations, younger people, women, queer people. So this is this is a different kind of atmosphere than what we saw with the civil rights era. I think that means that we also look to different kinds of texts that we reference. So biblical stories are familiar for those of us who grew up in church as something that we might reach to, to look to, to offer a point of comparison, to make an analogy, to bring up a point. And those people who were raised similarly will instantly get it. There are many people who are not part of those circles. And so I think they're reaching for different materials now. They're reaching for other types of things. So for example, Yolanda Norton is has put together a Beyonce mass. This is not something we might have seen in the past. Or the song... I'm forgetting her name, but you gonna lose your job. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. So you're saying our reference so, material our reference material and this I think this is a really important point because it's something that I encounter in my leadership quite often, in that I have to think beyond my background and my experience of being raised a church kid in church mm-hmm. all my life. And quite often I do the callback to those uh, moments that I believe that I think that all people share, right? Like if I say, oh man, it's like being in revival, like, you know, whatever. And then sometimes for people, even other black folks, they're like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, wait, I have to explain like what, like, or Uh being, or if I say, you know, oh, she on a sick and shut shut in list. And they're like, what? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So like those kinds of callbacks in understanding the cult, not only the cultural colloquialism of that, but then also in the movement leadership, right? Because then right. you can't, so does a, what's the, 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 the movement, the former NAACP president is leading now on the poor people's campaign. I'm blanking on his name right now. So he is a representative of the traditional path of black political and movement leadership that we see. But as you you mentioned there are a number of people leading number one which is not and it's not a type right like it is right. not mm-hmm. the the minister of the town the largest congregations of the it, it's not that leadership it is much more diverse it is much more inclusive people are you know leading in that different way and what does that even I believe it's a good thing other people may believe it's chaos <laughs> but I believe it's a it's a good thing thing, although it can also be difficult in determining how do you determine what wins are, you know, if you don't, if you have these varying degrees of leadership. Yes, it's much more diverse, as you mentioned, much more inclusive than in the past, particularly in terms of leadership. So it's not that those folks weren't there, as you well know, it's they were on the sidelines, in the back, in the kitchen, uh, part of the strategy session, but not included at the press conference. William Barber, that's who I was thinking of. Yes. Yes, William Barber. 
So now we see that's that's changed, but it also means the material that we link to, that we look to, we don't have the same things in common anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was bringing up the, the you going to lose your job because it was overnight, it seemed, that we saw the video of uh, her being detained. And then like the next day, the clip went viral. And then by the next week, there was a song on Spotify. And we saw people in different cities using the song as a mantra as they were protesting. Right. So something like that goes viral around the world very, very quickly. And people who are part of contemporary culture on social media know what it is, can sing the song and the lyrics and feel that it's something that's a rallying cry. But is that not... Maybe this may be blasphemy, but maybe some researcher somewhere listening will write this as their thesis. Could that not be the same thing as freedom songs? Could that not be the same thing as songs sung in a field while working in the field, working on the chain gang or even marching, you know, in some of the civil rights protests? Like, it's just that it's a different somebody who's in determining what your like PhD or something might be on. Like, you should like you should take that and like use it and then just just give me a shout out while you're defending your dissertation. We see see things differently. So absolutely, that's a great example. Somebody like Bernice Johnson Reagan taking gospel songs, taking work songs and creating the music of the civil rights movement. That now just happens differently than it did before. So we don't have folks who are using church songs and anthems and those types of things, but are looking at contemporary culture because that's the thing that all of those people have in common. So what I think we're seeing is a different way of of thinking about what holds people together. And so, again, for, for those of us raised Black church, we can quote scripture, Bible verses, we have experiences that bring us together, but we have to remember that not all Black folks have had those experiences. Not all Black folks can identify those anthems, you know, give me three notes or less, I can tell you what it is. <laughs> right. And I didn't, you know, and to be, to be honest, I I didn't realize that until I went to college. I didn't Mm -hmm. realize, you know, maybe in high school I had a perception of it, but I do because I went to high school in a place that was also an army base. I thought it had more to do with, oh, it's an army base. And so like, it's not going to be a black church at an army base because it's the army. And then it was only until I went to college where, and I had roommates who didn't go to church, like in that kind of regular tradition, you know, when they were like, oh, we going somewhere in a weekend. I'm like, you don't got to be in a choir stand on Sunday. Like, what, like, what, like, what is this? We what mean stay over, right. stay over where? How you go? Like, you, you know, so, so the last piece I, I want to talk to you about briefly, because I've seen some of your tweets about this as well. I have been, I would say in the last 10 years, incredibly disappointed at the level of engagement. And when I talk about, when I use the phrase black church right now, I am talking about it in its totality in the cultural phenomenon and not talking 
talking about individual black churches. So people don't come for me on social media talking about my pastor and my church do so and so. I'm talking about the collective of the black church. As a group. Okay, as a group, I have been incredibly disappointed at the lack of engagement in movement work at the local level and the overall national level. And I've seen some of your conversation here and there in how the black church and you even talk about it briefly and talking about how our leader how leadership is represented right now is sort of obviously diverse and I think that's a welcome uh, change but I'm also incredibly disappointed about the the, the lack of show up <laughs> in leadership in some of the movements that are happening now and I think you share some of that and or just wanted you to sort of explain your your thought process on that as well sure so uh, as you said with all uh, caveats to individual churches and pastors that are doing the work yes we acknowledge that that is happening but on a larger scale we're not seeing the the kind of engagement that one might wish to see I, I think that might be for a couple of reasons so I know here in Philadelphia for example various journalists were tweeting about some of the protests that were happening in Philadelphia and saying we're not seeing clergy but I happen to know that there were clergy at the protests but they were not suited and booted per usual mm-hmm. they may or may not have had their clergy collars on but were there more as observers to make sure or to try to make sure that things didn't get out of hand to be witnesses to the action but they weren't all there behind a banner wearing matching t-shirts mm-hmm. so I think even as we see things being more diverse in terms of leadership, I think what you might see is not people marching arm in arm together behind a banner, but people who are more part of the crowd. Um, So for example, I know for a fact that Mark Kelly Tyler, who's a senior pastor at Mother Bethel AME here in Philadelphia, has been out, has been broadcasting live on Facebook. We're trying to get him to step up his Instagram game, but who somebody who has been out and who is part of what's happening, but you might not see him and, you know, 300 people from Mother Bethel all together the way you might have at other periods of time. So I think some of it is people are showing up in different ways. I would also say, I think that some Black pastors right now are dealing with just trying to keep head above water. So dealing with paying bills, paying the mortgage, not having church face-to-face for some communities has meant a huge drop in income. Certainly, again, I know there are plenty of folks who still pay their tithes and offerings, but there are some places where that is not the case. And some folks who are part of congregations where many of them have been very hard hit by what's going on in our economy with COVID and they don't have it. So some pastors are actually worried about, will they be able to reopen in a, in a post COVID world? Folks who are trying to make sure that people are connected to resources, whether that's food, housing, those types of things. So I think that <clears throat> a lot of this may be related to Black church, Black clergy who were already stretched 
pretty thin, many of whom were already bivocational, meaning they were already working at the post office and pastoring. And now there's even less time and fewer resources. But I think you, I think folks are still out there. Folks are still trying to keep their congregations together. Folks are still trying to maintain community in lots of different ways. It's unclear what that's going to look like in a, in a post-corona world. But I think that on the side of the congregation, I've seen many more people who are excited about these options in worship, not having to get dressed, not having to deal with traffic and parking, and still feeling that whatever they are receiving, even if it's online, is something that is beneficial to them and is nourishing to them in a, in a very real way. So I'm hopeful that what we might see out of this from Black Church is an embrace of diversity, inclusion, and and greater creativity. That may mean that there are fewer places, though, for face-to-face worship. Well, Dr. Junior, thank you so very much. I feel like we can we can have our own discussion of the many different... I need to put a group together of uh, <laughs> people I could just wax poetic about Bible stories and theory and theology that does not include my family who's telling me just go to Bible college and get it <laughs> oh, <laughs> get your dear. divinity degree and get it over with. Well, listen, <laughs> uh, we need it because at least based on what I'm seeing on, on my Twitter feed, Kev on stage is not the person we want to be holding these theological conversations. <laughs> so yeah, but this they, they're just they're just saying that to try to get me to get a, a minister's license and <laughs> and join the family business is not gonna happen. <laughs> so you tell, can run. See, like Jonah, you can see? run. <laughs> See, here you go with the, with the fit. You can run. Listen, I used to teach at Howard at the School of Divinity. I will call Dean Yolanda Pierce. <laughs> we can get you an application, ma'am. Oh, Lord. I have, I should say, like, it's not on, like, on the, the wall here in my home office. But I remember, so I actually got a honorary doctorate in theology um, at an event. And I was like, I'm considering not taking it because my family going to talk trash for the rest of my life. <laughs> My grandmother actually founded a Bible college mm-hmm. and y'all giving me an honorary. I'm never going to hear the See? end of this. Yes, I'm never going to hear this. But a foretaste. Oh, Lord. Here we go. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you for having me. Thank you so very much for listening. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civic. It's who we are.